Artcast, your weekly podcast for insight into the articles to read, decks to play at FNM, cards to buy and sell, and insight from Robert Martin and Channel Fireball's own Tristan Sean Gregson. It's time for Hardcast. Hey everyone and welcome to the Hardcast. I'm your host, Tristan Sean Gregson, along with Robert Martin. How are you doing tonight, Robert? I'm doing wonderful, and I think you're doing wonderful, too, considering what happened earlier this evening. If by earlier you mean mere minutes ago, leaving Robert up till the wee, wee hours of the morning or night, I'm not sure what. I just I picture a basement full of cats with the stories I've heard from him these days. So Robert's uh, staying up late because my Sharks have finally made it to the third round of the playoffs, which... I'm really, I'm sure that's what you guys have all tuned in for, my thoughts on, on their run. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's a different show. We'll, we'll leave that aside. Tonight we're actually talking about magic. Um, a hard cast, you know, we're, we're in a bit of a transition here. Uh, I think that, um, you know, for the, what I found out is, is, is literally hundreds of people that have somehow accidentally misclicked on this instead of what I had to have sure must have been hardcore pornography and ended up listening to it week after week. You're actually coming back all the time. And that being said, we're actually going to try to, um, you know, kind of take the comments and emails that I've received from people and uh, curtail our show for you, the listener. That being said, surprisingly enough, the feedback that I've been getting a lot of is you kind of like what we have to say. Um, so while we are still a Channel Fireball-sponsored show, that is still our home, our, you know, alma mater, if you will. They still pay my rent and allow me to have electricity in my home to even be able to do this. Uh, we're going to be moving on to various other topics that we will be covering, um, mostly spawned from Robert's own brain and his incredible interaction with the magic community in so many different facets. No one that I know more that spends more time on Twitter, uh, maybe other than Xbox Live support, which is an awkward story for another time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you're going to get the same excellent quality article review content, only this time we're picking and choosing the things that have really excited us. Uh, and then additional topics to be figured out, you know, at a later time. And again, that brings in the listener feedback. If you out there think that you've got great ideas for us to talk about more viewer, listener, sorry, listener questions, not TV show, uh, more yes. listener questions, more listener emails, all these things, you can direct them to us. And, uh, again, we're, we're, we're curtailing the show to, again, the, uh, blew my mind, literally hundreds of people that somehow listen to this every week. Well, the one thing I'd like to talk about right away is this week alone for you with the unopening of boxes and <laughs> getting stuff ready. How does how does the store function when that happens? Um, break breakdown, as we lovingly call it, is an interesting process um, for a secondary market dealer like ourselves. The you know there's profit to be made by taking all these sealed packs and cracking them all into singles and selling the cards individually, doing all that busy work of sifting and sorting and organizing and alphabetizing and shipping you guys off the final product that you just, I just want the mental missteps. I just want the foil mental missteps. I don't want all that fluff in between. So, um, you know, for a set, uh, a lot of, you know, what, you know, a lot of what tells us how much to break down is how much there is for pre-ordering. And for this set, it was very easy to kind of gauge how much to break down because uh, pre-orders were high. Stuff was up there forever. Uh, so, you know, we we get our, our products from a few different locations, some by train, some by truck, some by FedEx, some by UPS. Uh, stuff all shows up in our warehouse, and things kind of convert 
for a couple of days. All of a sudden, there's just yeah. You picture like uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when the rich kid gets the the golden ticket, and there's just like a room full of elderly women in uh, uh, aprons just ripping chocolate bars open, only replace that with magic cards. And you've pretty much got an accurate picture of what our warehouse looks like on Wednesday. Now, what kind of days are they putting in for this? Well, the the interesting thing is for something like that, um, it's hard to use our entire operation. Uh, People that work at the store every day of the week usually have jobs already, so it's kind of hard for them to stop and just crack packs. So, you know, friends, family, scabs, students... Uh, we bring in a lot of people to, that we know to kind of help us get through the process. We'll, depending on when we get the products, we'll either have kind of a dinner pizza party breakdown or a, you know, morning bagel and cake breakdown. Don't ask, don't ask about the cake. No. Um, but, um, it's, it's not the full staff because again, we do have a lot of things we need to be going on day to day, but we'll, you know, get in there, crack all the packs open. We always have like a, a chase or a money card, kind of like a, an extra incentive. If you open it, you get like a bonus. And uh, it's usually whatever the most expensive foil card in the set is. And again, again like it's a lot like the, the golden ticket thing. So if you crack that foil card while we were cracking packs, you got a little bit of a bonus. So now with the with the, like Luis, for example, does he put in a request for cards ahead of time for a set like this? Um, very rarely. I mean, Luis is, um, you know, when, when he plans, when he uses forethought for things, it's rarely about, uh, what cards should I order for Luis? It's more about playing the game than worrying about acqui- uh, acquisition and collection. But this time around, he definitely was like, make, make sure you set aside for foil mental missteps for me. I'm definitely going to want those. And that's a mental note we'll make for ourselves and make sure to set aside. Uh, and not, you know, screw it up and make a misstep. But for the most part, you know, if he needs regular cards for a tournament, uh, he has a strong network of people that he can get them from, so he doesn't often uh, pick up regular stuff at a pre-release. Oh. Sorry, pre the set coming out. Oh, okay. I, I wasn't sure how that worked because, you know, you would think that they would be saying, oh, and I need four of this and four of this to put together whatever, figuring you might get some insight on what the next deck might be Some, sometimes that is the case um you know f- actually you know a pro tour event that's very close to a set release you know paris uh paris was a good yeah paris is a good example uh because it was like pre-release then one week of testing and flying out there so they definitely needed the cards immediately it, for the, so uh, yeah i mean yes you're right uh, that does happen from time to time uh, besieged actually moved the last set where louise is like okay i I know I'm going to need Sword of Feast and Famine immediately. I know I'm going to need Ink Moth Nexus immediately. Make sure we have these cards uh, for the team for the event. Okay. Well, I do have some articles I would like to talk about this week, including the first one that I would like to say I am slightly jealous about. Um, uh, Mr. Well had an interview with Richard Garfield, which is basically getting an interview with the Holy Grail of Magic, in my opinion. And... It, it was a very interesting read just to get his mind, picking his mind on stuff and how he's still involved with it and still plays with it, still plays magic is a lot of fun. I just wish it was on audio. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you come in, right? Don't you have yes. plenty of outlets for, for oh. 
I, I, I can't pull a Richard Garfield. <laughs> okay, that's that is very difficult to do. We're still really? well, we're still trying to work on getting some quote people from Wizards to do one with us. Interesting, interesting. Well, again, if you make it out to Worlds in San Francisco, I know he'll be there. You can probably get some FaceTime. Well, that would be awesome. Absolutely. He was in, uh, where was he? He was in Portland for that Grand Prix. Any uh, Tim Shields event on the on the West, because he does a lot of West Coast stuff. For a larger stuff, he'll show up for. Again, like, you know, Washington, Oregon, California, it's uh, it's easy to kind of make the trip down. Um so hopefully, yeah, I, I, uh, I've talked to him a couple of times, you know, once at length when I met him at Worlds in 2004 in San Francisco, and I had some, some magical questions for him. I think it was, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the infancy of game design uh, and kind of the birthing of the game are, are, are some of my biggest questions where it's like, you know, how do you, how do you take a concept so big? And you know, in many ways, it seems so obvious. It's like you know, what what misses? What do you miss from baseball cards? Well, you can't really play with them. It's like, well, you're like okay, you've you've done that. Well, it's like now, like, how do you really kind of envision collectability and all these things? It's like th- those big questions to me could just be hours of conversation. And that would be something. As much as the written word helps out a lot, I do think there's a difference when you give audio because you can get feeling and emotion into it, and therefore, if you're Discussing something that is relevant for what a listener wants to or a reader would like to have hearing, it makes a difference. It really does. At least that's my opinion on it. Of course, I'm being selfish about it, too. So, <laughs> But uh, Josh this week talks about uh, Mono Red and some options into it that I think you and I can explore. And this would be defending national champion Josh Utter-Layton, correct? No, 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 Silvestri. Oh, this is Josh Silvestri. Oh, Sorry. the kind of the uh, the deck witch doctor himself. Not not brewing something green this time around. No, it's all red, and it's all versions of red deck wins. The main red deck wins deck he has has two molten steel dragons, four shrine of the burning rages main, with four dismembers on the sideboard. What are your thoughts on that? It seems good. It seems good. I, you know, I um, in the early stages of uh, you know spoiler talk, one of the questions I was asking, I think even in Magic TV, I was asking uh, Luis and um, and Pat Chapin, were you know Red has got to be poised right now with uh, with uh, so much so much of this you know paying life in the immediate future, like make make people really pay for those probes that they think are so free. Um, that, that's what I want to see. So, yeah, I mean, Red Deck, I, I think it's it's going to be even more competitive now. Even though there's a sword to stop it? Yeah, it's not good. It's, uh, I'm not worried about that. Nah. Okay. All right. I, I'm, that's the only thing I could think of that would make it bad. Is that I mean, the, 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 only, the only thing that's awkward about that situation is your opponent kind of you know, controls their own desin- destiny with the number of cards in their own hand when it comes to gaining life. Uh, and that could really be the big swing. It's like, you know, you're not, you know, as the red player, you're not so concerned about taking extra damage from a sorted guy. Even the protection from red on a creature is something that, you know, red has more or less been having to live with for a long time. I mean, even back in the days of Sword of Fire and Ice, um, I remember playing kind of the Ponza, Ponza mono red variants back then. And, you know, you, you, you worked around it, you dealt with it, you destroyed it, you, you, you did it. 
uh, that wasn't as big of a deal, but the, the, you know, or it's like, okay, well, I, you know, I just won't play a fifth land or, you know, whatever it is. I'll just make sure I get in with the sword and gain all this life back. Could, could be a big deal. I think that's probably the biggest hurdle in, in terms of that card. Okay. Uh, Ocho talks about the best common removals in New Phyrexia, which is really good for drafting and stuff like that. The three he comes up with are Grim Affliction, Volt Charge, which is the best common removal in the set, and Binding Soul Eater, because tapping other people's creatures is really good. That was interesting. I really want to know where he was going to um, put the Soul Eater. Um, you know, that, that ability, you know, it's like, how high do you draft that guy if you're not in white? Uh, Volt Charge seemed pretty obvious. Um, you know, Obviously, any kind of lightning bolt variant is going to be very powerful in limited. Um, and proliferate just seems to be getting cheaper and more accessible on spells, which um, is interesting. I think that um, with the with the two sets prior, you really kind of saw it slowly creeping up. It seemed like one of those abilities that might be too powerful. Um, with the first set, and obviously Contagion class was huge and limited, but it's nice to see some uh, some more spells and effects that can really. Uh, Capitalize on proliferate. Hmm. Well, we have an uh, FNM deck of the week. Yes, we do. And uh, again, I, I'm, I'm trying not to look, post a cause something list every every week because we all get it. The deck is very good. It's the thing to beat. This this week we're looking at um, uh, a rug deck, and what really stands out to me here is you're starting to play some of the cards I think are going to be big deal in block, are going to be a big deal in the standard moving forward. You've got two main deck Consecrated Sphinx and two main deck Thruns, which uh, really complement the, the standard four Lotus Cobra, four, you know, three Inferno, one Frost Titan suite that you find a lot of these decks. So it's, it's nice. You can explore into a turn three Thrun. You can just kind of lay a turn four Thrun, not worrying about it being countered, because that's just that kind of awkward turn where it's like, are you going to try to accelerate to six mana or trying to make sure you resolve a Jace? All of a sudden, you get Thrun out there. With all those Cobblade decks taking the Day of Judgments out of their main deck, maybe not even running that many in their sideboard. I mean, even if they do, like, this guy can regenerate through it. Um Thrun is slowly becoming a bigger threat. Again, he stops guys with the red-white sword, which is going to be popular. You're not seeing as many people running multiple copies of green-black sword or even green-blue sword at all. Um, so he's finally in there. Consecrated Sphinx is obviously solid. You're not seeing a whole lot of Doom Blades around right now. You know, Sure, there's Condemn, but that's not an instant answer to this guy. So I think this is this is uh, the the early... Constructions of the future of of decks for for constructed right now. Does it get Owen Seal approval though? Because Owen seems to be the rug master right now. Uh, this list I have not read by him. Um, I'm sure he's doing lots of block testing with Luis right now. But um, to that end, I can say they're all a fan of Consecrated Sphinx and block testing. Yeah, that was a card that seemed to have a have a lot of future implications and the way people are looking at block you're right it does seem to have a very good a very good home down the line and that that'll be another one on our list that'll be eventually going up in the right direction which it should be in the first place the one thing you talked about in there is people not playing day of judgment and I think uh, Hetrick's article from last week or this week touched on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Up, up, updating your 
your Kaw lists. Uh, you know, with fewer Valakut decks, we need to kill Primeval Titans and Avengers of Zendikar. Fewer creature-based decks, and usually kind of just having the upper hand in a Kaw, uh, Kaw match, you don't need Day of Judgment. It's kind of one of those catch-all answers for when you're playing against random decks. But it really, again, it feels like the metagame is fairly flushed out. It's not doing too much against Vampire. It's not doing too much against Red Deck. It seems like a card that's, you know, pretty rightfully being phased out of a lot of decks. And that means that you can play cards like Thrun more aggressively. It's not, you know, like a six drop to protect it. It doesn't even seem that's protector at that point. Um, being able to run it out there on turn three or four and not worrying about Wrath of God is a big deal. Well, ironically, there was another article this week, slicing that one in, by Paulo. And Paulo says one of the matchups that benefit due to that Call of Blade matchup would be bringing Day of Judgment back into the matchups. And then his other thing he brings about, which is really weird, is why people are removing Gideon from the mirror match. Removing it, you said? Yes. Uh, it depends. I think it, to me it depends on how much counter magic you run in your deck. Um, I, I think that any or all of the Planeswalkers can be a huge game-breaker in that mirror match. Um, Gideon is, I mean, you know, excluding Elspeth or kind of the or events or kind of the outlier Planeswalkers, which might, you know, see one or two or copies between the main deck and sideboard in those lists, which isn't, you know, completely off, you know, off the chart. Um, but again, five-mana Planeswalkers, it's, you know, it's going to be a little harder to resolve that readily at the right time. You, I, I've definitely found myself kind of, sandbagging it, sandbagging it, sandbagging it, like waiting for the right moment uh, to play it. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to make it work. And if you can kind of, you know, change your sideboard and go a different direction, you know, obviously, like, Paulo's coming at it from a different angle where, you know, here I'm talking about Hetrick saying, remove those data judgments from your deck. And, you know, your, your mortar pod gives you, you know, uh, hawk advantage and, you know, more man lands playing Inkwon Nexus is going to give you, you know, advantage in that way to make sure your guys get through. Um, you know, Paula could go the opposite direction. Like, well, if, you know, if no one's prepared for these things, if, if everyone's kind of changing their decks to play against each other, bringing back cards that were in the old, like, kind of Kago lists from three or four months ago could could win matches. All of a sudden, you know, you're you're facing cards you aren't expecting. It's a great example. If I go and, and play this rug list, and all of a sudden I'm playing against the Paulo version of the blue-white, maybe it's a little slower, it's running these control cards... I might I might end up losing that match because I'm completely unprepared for it. Hmm. There was also one other thing you brought up that I think would work well with our uh, current question and answer situation is he talks about the rating system and why it's not good at all, but he doesn't have an alternative for the system. And I've always wondered why Magic has a rating system that penalizes people for playing Magic. Luis and I did at least one entire Magic TV episode about this. Um, and, and again, to, to brush back over it, I think what I brought up at the time, it was because it was a bigger deal to me at the time. You know, Last year I played at the Pro Tour in San Diego. My rating was very close to 2,000 after the Pro Tour. And I was in a position where it wasn't really advantageous for me to play Magic. Um you know, like, I was very close to being able to qualify for nationals on rating, which kind of wanted to, like, you know, pick a tournament. You know, like, I didn't want to play in random drafts. I didn't want to play in, you know, like, kind of like a random FNM where somebody just kind of hands me a deck. I, wa- I wanted to be very cautious about my rating. And it led me to, you know, not play limited for, like, four or five months. I mean, I, I went from playing Pro Tour San Diego 
to not playing competitive limited magic until Grand Prix Portland. Um, hmm. you know, I, I mean, sad, long story short, I ended up missing the ratings cutoff for nationals and, you know, didn't even pay attention. But, you know, a part of that also went to the fact that I wasn't actually playing any magic. I was, I was better off not doing something I enjoyed, especially at a casual level, especially, you know, like, you know, uh, friends of mine are going to FNM. Well, it's like, yeah, you know, I'll pass. I'll just, you know, play a little bit online or do something else. Uh, and, you know, obviously, universally, we all know that's bad for the game, and that shouldn't be the way it is. And Luis and I kind of left that episode with the same kind of feeling, where it's like, well, you know, it's based on a, a chess rating system, and in the game of chess, you know, a 2,000-rated player isn't going to lose to a 1,600-rated player. That's just not the way it is. Um, and in Magic, you know, it's not a guarantee. It's not a lock every single time. And even if it's only 80-20, even 90-10, it's still going to happen. You're still going to lose. And the um, the scale at which you lose points drops off real fast. You know, and, uh, you know, Zane, if you've been following him on Twitter, he's been in a similar circumstance for the past few months where it's like, you know, you got to go, we all laugh. It's like you got to go 9-1 at FNM to make any ground. And uh, it's, it's, it's awkward. And... We all just kind of like, you know, kind of yell from our different areas. It's like, you know, find a new system, find a new system, do something else. And, you know, I've heard rumblings that Wizards is going to do something. Uh, you know, I'm not the math guy. I'm not the, the statistician that comes up with the formula that will tell you how we're going to do it. But, you know, I, I definitely would have enjoyed the game a lot more if last year I got to play every week. I got to draft all the time. I mean, there was definitely a time at our local store where I got to draft, you know, once, twice a week, and that was a lot of fun, and I, I had to stop. And that it seems to ruin the reason of why you play the game. And that's, I don't know, I guess my thing is is I would rather have the person that grinds, you know, Maybe not F&M, but does the drafts and does the tournaments and things like that, that plays Paper Magic a lot and reward that person for playing more because that's the person who is actually earning what they're getting. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if the person's good, they may go 20 and 5, you know, with those five random losses in there. But the guy gets penalized because he's playing against someone like, say, oh, me with a 1600 rating, and he gets penalized badly because he may lose a freak match to me like that. And I, like I said, I don't know if that's really fair or not. Yeah. Again, it's, it's a, it's an awkward, difficult position that, uh, you know, I, we don't, you know, if someone had a really good answer for it and a really good system, pretty sure it would just be implemented. I don't think that, uh, I don't think Wizards is sitting on the current system being like, well, this is the, this is the best. This is the way it should be done. This is what we're doing. Uh, I think it's far more like, well, you know, this is in place. It's more or less work for us for now. We don't have anything better and can't think of anything better. So we're just going to do it. Of course. Well, let's go to the best segment of the show, at least for me. It's the <laughs> five up, five down. It's interesting because it's, I mean, it's not my least favorite, but it's like, it's really not exciting to me at all. Uh, but again, take, you know, take the reins here. Where are we going? Well, let's go up this week because with the new stuff coming out. It's down too depressing. We're just going to go with up. All right. Well, because of what's on the down list, I'm, you know, that's why. I'm a big, I, big investor in all these cards. You don't want to talk about them? I, I understand. Uh, okay. Well, let's start with the first one, uh, Spellskite. 
this is a real surprise for me. I, I, I thought this card was just so defensive that how could it ever be good? I mean, it's effectively a wall. And every once in a while it changes the target of a spell, but apparently it changes the target of a lot of spells. It lives through a lot of stuff. And, uh, it, it's, it's pretty good. It's on the rise right now. Again, it might be block implications. It might be a combination of things. I definitely know that you can, um, cast your Grand Architect, tap your Grand Architect to play this card, and then use your life via, you know, Phyrexia payment. All while being tapped out to deflect spells away from your ever important Grand Architect and block. And who knows? Maybe type two and so on and so forth. So this was definitely a sleeper early on, but it's starting to pick up some steam. It's interesting. Mere Superion. You know, again, I just kind of mentioned it with the whole Grand Architect thing. Um, you know, this card, it came out, it was like a dollar. It kind of, you know, spiked people's interest when they're like, oh, well, Jiraga Tree Speaker, you immediately get this guy. All of a sudden you're making new colorless Tarmogoyfs left and right. Uh, it shot up in value, came back down, kind of rode the wave, um, you know, during the pre-sale season. But it, it seems to be a strong contender for people. I, I you know, I, I think Connolly in a, you know, like a Monday Night Magic interview, he was talking about how, well, you know, like they, they chose it as a, as a top eight game day foil for the next game day. So Wizards obviously believes this card is good. And I think more people are actually thinking it, it, it is good. Um, and again, there are still plenty of ways out there to cast it. I mean, you know, Birds of Paradise, Land War Elves, these are all cards that see play, and, you know, it's not completely absurd to think people are going to play more derogatory speakers while they're still in standard, and then Grand Architects and things similar after that. So, uh, this guy is back, back up in value. Well, the next one, Blade Splicer. Yeah, I really, I, again, these, a lot of these things are kind of surprises to me, where it's like, you know, I, I kind of looked at a mostly Call of the Herd, but I guess this is kind of something close to an upside. I don't know. For only three mana, you're getting the 3-3 three, three for three, but you're also getting kind of the 1-1 the one, one extra dirtle on there that might be a problem because all of a sudden it's giving you a 3-3 three, three first strike. Um, and in, in a day and age of a lot of popular equipment, you're getting two more bodies to put things on. You know, maybe you don't have the time to return your batter skull to your hand and then re-put it back into play with a new guy on it. And you just need bodies all already lying around the battlefield. This card kind of gets it done. It, again, it's the most aggressively costed. It's, um, you know, the most power and most bang for your buck. But to me, it was, again, it was still a bit of a surprise. It just seemed um, way too close to whatever that guy from Morning Tide was. It's like a, Hill giant that puts a one one elf into play and yeah I know what you're talking yeah. about yeah but um, again what, what what was an uh, what was under a dollar rare for quite a while is is making its way out of the cellar and uh, appears to have playability from what I've seen and heard I really want to see what that gets in because what are you taking out of the three slot to put this in for well I mean there's I mean if you, if you think about uh, Cobb Blade decks like what's what's in the three slot of those decks all the swords. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, you're not really hard casting them all that often. I mean, yeah. you think about, um, gosh, what's the pure sight paladin, pure steel paladin? Yes, one? the one. Um, you know, uh, again, the, these cards could be in the same deck. All of a sudden, you know, you know, swords aren't always the best when you cast them on turn three. Um, you're probably the best when you cast them on turn five. So you can equip them. But, you know, depending on your curve, maybe it is better turn three, but we'll see. I, I, I still think this card, 
I, I again, I'm surprised. So we'll we'll see how how it turns out. Yes. Uh, and the one we talked about earlier. Consecrated Sphinx seems yes. pretty obvious. It seems like I've been harping on it for a while, but uh, pick these things up. They are good. They need to be killed. Uh, otherwise, you have such card advantage. And, um, you know, look look for impact in block. And, you know, block isn't exactly the, the best barometer for what standard looks like today, but it's going to be a good barometer for what standard is going to look like in the fall. And I think you're going to see this card. You know, maybe it's more of a long-term up. It's definitely been up in the short term, but not as much as I think it has potential to. So, uh, you know, don't trade them away cheap. Uh, pick them up where you can. Hold on to them. And then the last one we seem to be talking about every week, the Blight Dragon. Skitherix, back up again. Uh, you know, I, I'm waiting for the Infect deck to really hit. Uh, you know, in the... Kind of the murmurs I've heard around testing for the block format. Uh, Infect might be a deck that's on the outside looking in. It might not see action. Who knows what it's going to look like in standard. Sure, everyone's got their 1-1 green Infect guy for one. You don't have to mess around with any dumb vector asps anymore. But it doesn't make it competitive. doesn't make it... Uh, you know, strong enough. I mean, I, I, I can't envision it being incredible when, you know, Gutshot is out there for everyone in the same set and Arc Trail is still very popular and so on and so forth. But uh, this card continues to get ahead of steam. It is a mythic after all, so it's always got room to grow. So I definitely don't sell them cheap. Okay. And now we go to the ones that are going down, including the first one, which was the... When we talked about earlier, where if you would open it up and it was foil, you'd get a bonus. <laughs> so right now, here we are. You know, it's it's effectively release day everywhere around the globe, uh, and you know, the, all the public, everyone's getting their hands on these cards finally. So a lot of the inflation from pre-release, kind of pre-sale time, is starting to cool off. And sure enough, Karn is liberated, and he'll be liberated in price very soon because he. Uh, He's a sweet card, but he's not really going to be trumping Jace anytime soon at 7 mana. So I think that he's going to continue in a downward trend until somebody really exploits him, which I, I think is possible. I still I think I'm one of the few people out there that actually still really likes this card and constructed and think it's going to be a good card at some point somewhere. I feel like I'm really in the minority at this point. Well, what do I know? I don't really get to play Magic anymore, but he has very powerful effects. He's colorless, which means anyone can play him and anyone can get there. Um, but until we see a result with this card in it, watch for it just to continue to drop off. Are you looking at that as more of a block card? Card is obviously very good in block. Uh, I can't imagine there being block decks that will be prevalent enough and fast enough to make slower effects and powerful large effects like Karn not very strong. Um you know, it was funny, Luis was actually very thankful it's not an artifact, uh, because, you know, so much artifact destruction is going around for the block format. And I was saying, you know, what if he was an artifact? All of a sudden you can just pump him out with your, uh, with your Grand Architects, and all of a sudden, you know, you're vindicating permanence on turn four, or, you know, better yet, exiling cards in your opponent's hand on turn four, and they have to fight it in some other fashion. Uh, regardless. He's gonna, you know, drop because he was put on a big pedestal up front. But uh, I think he'll be good at some point. Just uh, you know, sell him now. You'll have plenty of time to get more later. Okay. And then the one card that I really like from the set, the Obliter Obliterator. Frostgate Obliterator, in many ways, is suffering for the fact that it was just printed at the wrong time in the wrong set. 
yes, it has Phyrexian at the front of its name. Yes, it's new Phyrexia, so I guess this is its time. But being printed in an artifact-centric block is really bad for a card that costs quad black. I mean, sure, you could cheat this guy into play, but cheating four drops into play seems like something that really only Aether Vial eventually will do. Uh, you're going to want to play this card in a dedicated mono-black deck, and the problem with mono-black decks are they have a really hard time destroying things like artifacts. Uh, sure, you've got ratchet bombs, but even your opponents can blow up those ratchet bombs as they're slowly ratcheting their way up to be able to kill Swords of Feast and Famine and Mirren Crusaders and other things that can stop this big guy. Um, you know, I love Obliterator, I love the artwork, I love the flavor, I love seeing all those black mana symbols. It reminds me of some sweet cards I got to play back in the day, but I uh, I don't see it being good anytime soon, and I think that's going to have a big deal with its value in the near future. Well, there's a good question. Uh, it may go down in value. Does it fit in the cube, though? Oh, definitely. Oh, okay. Definitely. okay, I just I was wondering if that was one of the cards that had made the cube or not. Oh, definitely, definitely. Mono, mono black, still, still big fan, big fan. And and you know, mana fixing's out there. It's not uh, like you know my my cube specifically. There's there's plenty of ways to make it happen. Okay, just I was just checking on that one. Uh, surgical extraction. Yeah, you know, uh, it seems like every single quote unquote competitive professional Magic player is talking about how this card really isn't good and. Uh, it's still, you know, despite all this dogging, it's managed to keep a strangely high value um, until recently. It's kind of come down from the stupid $10 pedestal it was sitting on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to come back down to reality. This card is now extra paid, and even if it wasn't extra paid, it's really not even that much more spectacular. Uh, you know, it, it seems like it should be a 3 or $2 rare real soon, and... You know, who knows, maybe one day in some more eternal format it's going to, you know, be the nuts in some variety where you can't find black mana. And at that point it might become a 6 or $8 rare, but I, I can't imagine this card being worth mental misstep value in, you know, four weeks. Which is scary because they're two different, completely different cards and at two completely different slots on the board, and the mental misstep is by far, it seems like, at least in Legacy, is by far the better card, at least from what people are saying about it. Now, the next one on your list is interesting, because when this one first came out, people were real happy for EDH, but then again, it's EDH, and we're not talking about Standard, the (laughs) Eldish Norn. Elish Dorn, um, you know, it's kind of the prime example of the suffering from being the uh, the first preview card, the kind of the the mouth-watering tidbit that they give you right out of the gate. Um, you know, it's mythic, it has very swingy abilities, it's very splashy, it looks really sweet in foil, and there's, there's all these things that would make you, like, just pull the trigger and buy this card. And in reality, you have to kind of stop and think, like, oh, wait a second, seven mana, okay, well, do I have a bunch of guys on the board this is going to benefit from? Like, if my opponent is playing a deck where they have a lot of creatures, is turn seven really something I should be thinking about? Um, you know, I, again, I'm not the first person to say any of these things. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, I think it's suffering from being the hot hip star first on the block, and then all of its, you know, peers showed up, and everyone realized, like, well, wait a second. All right, there's other cards in this set I want to buy. I don't really want to waste my time with this, what used to be like a $10 Mythic and is already down to about $4. Uh, I think really in the grand scheme of things, she's going to be one of the more mid-range value Mythics for this set. 
It's like you need one or two of them. You don't need a set of four. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I know. Yeah. And then the last one, which surprises me considering how powerful it's it's been for so long, the Sword of Feast of Famine. Well, you can really thank Sword of War and Peace for kicking Sword of Feast and Famine down a notch. Hmm. Um, it's already had such an impact that Sword of Body and Mind really isn't seeing any play anywhere. I mean, I could have put it on this down list as well. I mean, it was like $15 you know, 10 days ago, and now we're looking at an $11 and $10 range for Sword of Body and Mind. Sword of Feast and Famine um, you know, was one of those cards that it started at a higher benchmark because it didn't have a promo foil version out of the gate. It was... So huge in Paris, became, you know, an instant one or two or maybe three of in some decks. Uh, and, you know, reality has set in. This card is very good. It's a Mythic Rare, which means its value is going to be high. Do you need more than one or two copies? Really? Nah, not so much. Uh, and it's come down off its pedestal. It's it's down currently. You know, could it make a big comeback and raise back in value? It does have that possibility. It's going to need to see a lot more dominating play, and Red-White Sword is really going to have to flop in order for that to be the case. So if you're looking to uh, pick up Sword of Feast and Famine, you think it's going to be competitive, now might be the time to actually do it. Otherwise, uh, look for this guy to, to drop a little bit more if uh, War and Peace actually does have the impact many people are thinking it's going to. One of the things that's been brought up about the swords in general is that they think that wizards put them out of order. Had you switched the order around and put the Sword of Feast and Famine last, how different this would have, how different the set would have played and what the decks would have been? I mean, yeah, well, uh, I think you would have done Valaku a favor. I think that's, that, that would be true. Um, it's interesting, you know, if you were to take Paris, and you were to just swap swords. <laughs> yes. Think of how think of how interesting things would be. Like, I, obviously, that that's really far fetched, and that's you know not how things would have gone down. But all of a sudden, that that blue white decks match up against Boros is very favorable. All of a sudden, you're way more interested in playing uh, Mirror and Crusaders main deck because equip the sort of uh, War and Peace to that guy, and the game can end real fast. Um. You know, it, it's you don't necessarily lose that much more out of the Valakut match uh, with the Mirren Crusader advantage. You know, it's a, it's a little more difficult to get all those things to come together in order to get like a Stone Forge into a sword into a Mirren Crusader. It's not like um, the Squadron Hawk fly over with the Sword of Feast and Famine. But uh, I, the deck would play very similarly. Uh, the effect might be stronger in certain matchups. Uh, it would be interesting. It would be it would be interesting. I think that the swords themselves are powerful. I think what's really really powerful though is Stoneforge Mystic, uh, you know, Jace Squadron Hawk, you know, preordain card advantage interactions. So giving them any kind of tools like that is going to be very strong. And I, think what's really obvious is that Sword of War and Peace and Feast and Famine are head and shoulders above Body and Mind, and that's that's really what what's the big difference. Yeah, and it was kind of. It was kind of amazing to think of how at one time what Stoneforge Mystic was, what, three bucks? Uh, when the set was released, it was around three dollars. Yeah. Uh, I, I, w- I was a heavy investor at that point because I was so excited to cash out at them at like eight dollars a piece when, uh, uh, PT San Diego was going on because there was running of like a two of in the Nyadak. 
Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Boss and I was running that card. We were getting some basilisk collars, and we were putting them on some cunning spark pages, and we were going to town. And at that point in time, I was like, wow, this is a sweet $8 card I bought for $3. I'm going to sell them to vendors for 6 or 7 and I'm going to pay for many a meal and gas. Oh, yeah, it's funny because that's the kind of card that just doesn't seem like it'll fade away even I mean, it'll be very popular and extended for that season, and I, I've, I've think I've seen him in Legacy. Who? Maybe the Stoneforge Mystic. I definitely see him in Legacy. Okay, so she's out there. Yeah, so I don't know if that card. I mean, I don't know how much further up it can go, but I don't think it'll go down a whole heck of a lot no, because no, it'll no, be played no. again. Like this sounds. At this point, it's such an amalgamation. Like, I don't know if I know I've said, I know Luis has said it a million times. It's like, it's a card that can only get better, right? Like, they're only going to print more equipment, and they're, even if they only print more infinite bad ones, like, you still have the, the current suite of good ones, and I'm sure you'll find niche abilities for even if they print really bad equipment from here on out, which doesn't even seem like it'd be the case. So, yeah, it's, it's good. And, yeah. Well, that's for the five up and five down. Now it's been it's a it's a fun week for you guys with the set coming out and cards being moved all over the place and orders being shipped. How long does the is it going to take till the next standard tournament to determine what fluctuations you're going to get in pricing on cards? Um uh, yes and no. For major changes, yes. For minor changes, popularity is a big factor. Um, yeah, you know, like Magic Online won't have much of an impact right now. I mean, like standard PTQ season, you know, we're already kind of in it. So you could be having PTQs around the country this weekend that are going to have, um, you know, the set be legal. You're going to get results from those. People are going to, you know buy and sell accordingly. Uh, I mean, like, what is it? Uh, Splinter Twin is already an example of something where it's like oh. people thought they saw a deck, they thought they saw interactions, and they immediately went for it. Yeah, $12 for a Splinter Twin. $12. Yeah, yeah that seems a bit excessive, but, you know. I, I just, I guess my thing is, how much now do you guys have to watch the results of this weekend? To see what's happening, the things to see what's out there and what's being played, to adjust accordingly. Starcity Games event in Florida. Yes. So that's kind of the first real barometer. Uh, if you remember, kind of like uh, what was it, Eldrazi Green? Uh, was it about this time last year? Maybe a little bit later. We're kind of this, you know, innocuous pile of green cards with uh, Nissa Vane and Eldrazi Monument kind of came out of nowhere and and won a 5K tournament. Like all of a sudden, that had immediately, immediate, overnight, huge impact on the value of uh, more than a handful of cards, and that's something that's very capable of happening this weekend. With you know, not not just new Phyrexia, it could be some other interaction between the newest set and old sets, or uh, you know, cards and ideas. So things things could change, but um, it would be I think it would be more short term. It would be more kind of uh, you know, flash in the pan. Okay. Well, like I said, we're just trying to give people a little insight on what's going to happen or oh, what yeah. could I mean, happen. 
you know, as even as like a player, a dealer, collector, I think um, you know, release weekends are just a lot of fun to go out and acquire cards. Uh, you know, the majority of F and M's on a weekend like this are limited in one variety, seal decker or draft. You don't you don't see a a whole lot of constructed events the the day a new set comes out. I think um, even small retailer retailers realize the they can capitalize on the fervor of the new set, so they would usually run limited events. So it's fun to it's fun to draft, it's fun to play sealed, and hopefully I'll get an opportunity to do so myself this weekend because I don't usually get the chance. But I am actually in town, which is a rarity for me. So yes, you know, play some magic. The next big trip is overseas, correct? Uh, that is, yes, that is the next big trip. Ironically, there are very few little trips in between. I think uh, it's uh, one Bay Area PTQ for me, one LA Area PTQ for me, and then uh, it's off to Japan. That should be interesting. Well, I think we're right about to the point where we want to end the show. Uh, is anybody going to be at the release this weekend? Um, I think Louise is actually going down to LA. Uh, I think like Matt Nass, Josh Silvestri, Josh or Layton, those guys usually show up at this, at our local store for stuff like that. Uh, you know, I'm not, again, I'm, they always, I'm always on location, so I have no idea what anyone's up to these days when it comes to events nearby. Um, I just hope to get some cubing in. I think the most important lesson I learned last night in playing was that turn one mana vault, turn teal, molten steel dragon is still pretty good. Ouch. Yeah, that is. Oof. Yeah, it hurt both. It hurt both players a lot. It took four of my life coming into play, and then Man of All took many of my life. Well, not many because the game didn't last too many turns after that. But it was uh, that, that was my my first spectacular new Phyrexia experience with uh, Cube. And there's nothing wrong with that because that's and that's exactly what you guys were talking about this week on the show. Was what's the level of pain are you willing to take in your deck in order to get to where you need to get to? So it was interesting. You were willing to take four life on turn one to be able to get to where you needed to get to. Well, th- thankfully only turn two. But in or my two, head, yeah. I'd already I'd, I'd already spent that four life on turn one. I I had already invested you know six to eight life in order to make this plan happen. Um, but yeah, I mean that's a big question in a lot of formats moving forward. Is uh, you know how do you you know as a as a player determine how much life you're willing to more or less throw away, how much of it is a, is a tool you're using to finish your ends, and uh, where do you meet in the middle, and where do you really afraid getting burned out from? <laughs> yeah, no kidding, because then eventually those cards become dead in your hand because you can't afford to give up the life. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's going to take very long before uh, players are going to be stuck with, stuck with cards in their hands or all of a sudden playing... Uh, Seemingly inferior versions of other spells, where they have to pay full price for them. Mm. But uh, it's all part of the game. It's all part of managing. And I think that in the end, it's it's really a boon. I you know, I, I think New Phyrexia in that respect has been a success, um, and it's really kind of its its biggest strength in overcoming the uh, the spoiler falter and kind of the um, the other feelings of kind of mediocrity that go along with the set. Thankfully, Phyrexia mana by itself is uh, is saving it for me at least, and I think that will for for players in the long run. It'll be definitely interesting this weekend. It'll, it'll be a lot of fun for people to see what they do with, and and it's it's definitely interesting to see how people are building their decks with the cards they get and how they split them up. And one of the things that that I saw, which was fascinating, actually was a part of, was I had a mind slaver, and I used it, and I made him burn Phyrexian mana till he died on his turn. 
Obviously. That's that's one of the best. That's one of the best. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting to see the Phyrexian mana work against somebody. <laughs> it's like, hi, oh, I'm sorry, you're at 15. Okay, we'll do 16 to you. And then just that look of, oh, can't believe that. But, you know. You just got to remember to play fair. You can't make them pay life they don't have. Oh, that's true. That's true. So you can get someone to the brink of death. Like, I've, I've, uh... Gosh, I mean, I'm trying to remember all the fun things that used to come up. But you used to play Tinker Stacks when Mindslaver first came out. And, like, to me, it was a home run when you got to, like, tap all their Shivan reefs that had been in play to make them take damage that didn't matter because you couldn't make the mana burn. But it was like, you know, take three, cast fire targeting yourself, all right, attack me with your metal worker, I'll block with my Master Core, like, all right, I'll now take my turn. Like, that Like that seemed like the, the biggest kick in the world. But now it's like, now you have a Mold Steel Dragon in play, and you're at 15. Well, now you're at 1. Yes. And I have to find one way to deal a point to you. Yeah. Well, that's the fun thing about it is you can just you set them up for the win and then it ends it. And it's so funny because when you got them at that point, you're like, oh, I don't care if your guys hit me because that won't kill me. And my guy will walk through and I'll win. So it's kind of fun. It really is. But on that note, it's probably right about the hour mark, and uh, we should probably end it right here. Uh, well, we don't have to, but we will. If yes. we'll, and I'll leave, I'll leave everyone by saying um, definitely send us your feedback, your emails, your questions, your uh, concerns, your ideas. Um, again, like I don't get around to money at Magic anymore. I don't have you know a lot of time to do these things, so I want to make the most out of any podcast I can get on. So we want to address your questions and uh, bring you the content that you painstakingly downloaded, uploaded into your car and are now driving some ridiculously long distance to get to while listening to us talk about what feels like nothing. So uh, let us know, and uh, you can reach me at tsg at channelfireball.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Tristan Gregson, uh, which I'm crossing my fingers. I'm going to break 600 followers this weekend. I, I'm slowly inching my way. Um, and there you have it. What about you, Robert? Uh, you can reach me at uh, robert at channelfireball.com or on the beamy. T H E B E M E on Twitter. And I'm always available for emails and tweets or whatever you need. Again, a, a man of the magic people. No one, very few people do I find more entrenched in uh, what people are talking about, listening to, watching than this guy. So uh, tap that resource. Well, again, thank you for listening. And we will see you next week. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.